ignition switches. On. RPM switches. Set. TD switches. Normal. Doors and hatches. Closed. Lay down. Strobe light. On. Restart check is complete. Clear left. Engineer. Start number two. Starting two. Wing 31010, pilot project podcast. Clear takeoff from Wing 31 left. All right, we're ready for a departure here at the Pilot Project Podcast, the best source for stories and advice from the pilots of the RCAF. I am your host, Brian Morrison. With me tonight is Vic Weston. How are you doing, Vic? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Good. We are going to launch into it. This episode will probably air, I think it'll be episode four or five, but it's actually the first one we're recording. So Vic has kindly volunteered to be my guinea pig as I figure out all the equipment and growing pains of recording. So thanks for that, buddy. Vic graduated from flight training in 2012 from here in Portage, and he was posted to 417 Combat Support Squadron in Cold Lake, Alberta, and he was flying the CH-146 Griffin. He was posted in 2017 to 444 Combat Support Squadron in Goose Bay, Newfoundland, Labrador, and in 2018 to the Canadian Air Operations Center, or CAOC, in Winnipeg. In 2020, he was posted to 3 CFFTS in Portage of Prairie, where he is still instructing Phase 3 Hilo students on the Bell 412, which is the CV version of the CH-146 Griffin. So first question, where did it start for you in terms of flying? Oh, I'm so cliche when it comes to that. We'd been over in Vancouver and uh, we had just taken the ferry back to Victoria and we were driving down the Trisha Bay Highway, which is uh, just as you come off the ferry, kind of rolling back into Victoria. And uh, we were just going by the airport and we saw this like big formation of aircraft roll over. I was like, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. And my dad was like, oh, that's the Snowbirds. And it turned out it was the Victoria Air Show. I had no idea. And we pulled over and kind of watched the display. And then that definitely planted a seed where I was like, oh, man, that seems that seems worth exploring. Ended up joining cadets at 12. As soon as I was able to, I tried to join at 10, but they told me I had to wait a couple of years. So it was all just downhill from there. They have a flying scholarship program within cadets. And uh, I started doing the ground school when I was 13 for that, you know, had a few reps done of that and then got in when I was 16, did my gliders course. That was an amazing summer. Gliding is, it seems very basic and it is basic, but it is the most purest form of flying. Yeah, I agree. I went to glider as well when I was 17 and one of the best summers of my life. Like I'll never forget the friends I made and the experiences I had and that feeling of being in an airplane and there's only the wind noise. I still remember my first solo takeoff. Like yeah. I know what runway it was in Picton, Ontario. I remember seeing my shadow on the ground of the glider as I took off and thinking like, holy cow, it's just me. <laughs> yeah. So I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. It was the same experience for me. I, uh, you know, remember that summer just being one of my favorite memories growing up. The next year, I actually ended up going to the EAA Air Show in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And man, you were at the Oshkosh Air Show. Yeah. Oh, that's still on my bucket list. Dude, I hear you. I want to go back. Like, I want to <laughs> take a 412 back and just camp out for a week. Oh, man, bring me. Yeah. It was so amazing. There's just so much there. So, that was kind of another foundational thing. And then I ended up enlisting in the military the next year. And so how how old were you when you got in the military? I was 17. Right on. So yeah. 17 gusting 18. I was like, so you'll I, be 42 when you're pensionable. Yeah. That's, that's good, man. Yeah. And you went to RMC, right? Yeah. Yeah. And how was that? I had a great time. I have a lot of really close friends still from there that, uh, you know, just going through the ringer like that always tends to 
make close friends, I find. So we still talk every day pretty much. And uh, there's five or six of us and we just are always chatting about life and chirping each other, keeping each other honest. It's always great. So after RMC, you went for your flight training. Did you do flight training at all like between years or was it all after school? No, it was all after school. I did two years in Victoria in Esquimalt at the Joint Rescue Coordination Center. I did my phase one during that period. Did my land survival and my sea survival too. And so phase one is primary flight training or PFT, which is on the group here in Portage. Yeah, it was my first experience in Portage. It was great. Three months, kind of in the winter but flew nice and consistently, got done in three months. So. Was it pretty smooth? Yeah, it was great. No issues. Uh, Did you enjoy it? Yeah. Oh, man. Doing the arrows was super sweet. And going from really not having much experience at all, I had you know a couple hours flying with buddies in Cessnas to an aircraft that can loop, roll. Yeah, but it was really great. It was a great experience and uh, just a really awesome machine for when you're used to just flying 172s and uh, not really having that great a performance. Well, I, I never flew the Grobe, actually. Oh, yeah, because you had your commercial license already. Didn't yeah, you? so I think they gave me the option and somebody made it pretty clear to me that PFT was like very much still a selection course and they were going to try to weed people out. And I was like, I would love to get some more experience, but at the same time, I am not anxious to potentially get weeded out. So I said, thanks, but no thanks. Listeners will recall from Don's interview in episode one that this has now changed and phase one is very much designed to help people succeed. That's the one thing that I find like why I say guys should always keep trying to come back is because I've had some weird ones where guys who I thought were, were very eminently qualified get weeded out. One of my good friends, he ended up getting weeded out in the air crew selection, and he was very, very skilled as a pilot. I don't know how the sausage is made exactly there. Oh, they changed it. It's very different, I think, from the time yeah. we went through. But even back then, you would hear all kinds of rumors about how, yeah. you know, that, the that they grade you based scoop? on uh, how quickly you learn and improve. Or, you know, so some people would say, well, you got to do, you know, you got to do bad at first, and then you and then you show really good improvement. I just did my best. Like, I, I, I didn't try to game the system. I had a momentary panic when I was doing that. We were doing that circuit one. So there was yeah. like the, the fourth trip when, you know, kind of the rubber meets the road and you're doing the circuit and like my climbs were beautiful. My level off was great. And then I turned the wrong direction. <laughs> I'm like, oh crap, I turned back. And they still took you. Yeah, they still took me. So anyone can do it. Yeah, pretty much. So after PFT, then you did more OJT at uh, JRCC. And which JRCC did you say that was? In Victoria, in Esquimalt. Okay. It was really cool. It was uh, it was a great preamble for my my future career in search and rescue. Did you ever get a chance to go out like with a squadron at all? Or no, it was it was all very much just in the office. I got to do the SAR mission coordinators course, which is where they send the kind of more permanent folks to. That's awesome. Just to get them more experience. And is it search master that people get? No, that's a that's a different one. So that's more on the flying side, search master. The SAR mission coordinators is much more for the guys who work in the rescue center. Just different skill sets. I'm much more practical from a planning yeah. kind of C2 standpoint. So that makes sense. And C2 is uh, command and control. Yeah. Then you went on to phase two at which you did at Moose Jaw. Yeah. Yeah. We started in April 11th. So. Okay. That was such a slick course. We were, I was done in five months. How did you like the Harvard? It's a super cool aircraft. It's the equivalent of a Spitfire, essentially. In maneuverability, speed. I mean, it's slightly slower than in airspeed, but very cool. Yeah. Very cool aircraft. I used to to say almost exactly that, that flying the Harvard was like getting to fly like a modern World War II fighter. Like it was just so cool. I think it's still, I really loved flying the Aurora. 
But I, I think the Harvard might still be my favorite plane that I've flown. It was certainly a lot of fun. I feel like when you're on course, you don't really get to enjoy it to its fullest potential. I think the guys who did the the Bravo phase of phase two, the guys who were going fast yet. Yeah, they got to have a little more fun with that aircraft before they kind of turned it off and moved on to something else. I feel like we got to a point where we just got comfortable with the aircraft and really had like a, a certain level of mastery. And then, OK, on to the next thing. I got to do a solo where there was a significant amount of cloud. So we were kind of poking up and through. And another one of my buddies was out in a different, like the next airspace over. And so I could see him doing aerobatics at the same time. And it was pretty, pretty all time. Yeah. The solo flight where you get to go work on aerobatics is a really cool experience. Yeah. Arrows are fun. It was yeah. that was really neat for sure. I found it was a steep learning curve because it I had was. not done PFT. And so there was a bunch of terms I had to learn. So it was challenging. And also though, what really impressed me was I thought coming into it with a commercial multi-IFR, I would have a big advantage. And I did to a point, but I was so amazed by how quickly people basically caught up to the level they of they closed that well, distance. Yeah. And to get your commercial multi-IFR, like you're barely qualified IFR, right? Like you got your bare bones knowledge, you're ready to be a, a competent co-pilot and be walked through it. So you got your license to learn effectively. Absolutely. Especially mine was through a university program. So like you're getting the bare minimum hours yeah. to get your your quals. But it was really cool to see how quickly people like by only, a, I would say less than 10 trips, they were, they were like easily caught up. I thought that was really neat. So you get through phase two and the pressure's off, but the suspense is on because now it's election time. I actually asked to go helicopter. Did you? Okay. So that was, I was going to ask there that. Was, there was not any there was suspense. No suspense. <laughs> well, there was a little bit of panic stations because they were talking about, hey, we need more guys in the fighter More mill. fighter guys. Yeah. And so there was talk. That, that was about, the big narrative back then. About sending me fighters. I'm like, please, no. I, I, I had buddies who were going that direction. They really wanted it. I had a similar experience, um, but from what I understand, it is extremely rare for them to send somebody fighters who doesn't want it because it just yeah. takes so much dedication. I would have been happy in it, I think, if I had have done it, but I'm super happy with my career in the in the helicopter world, too. So yeah. you asked for helicopters. You got it. Yeah. You come to Portage and now we're on phase three and you were going through in the dark ages, right? When oh, yes, I, I distinctly remember <laughs> attending a graduation parade with one graduate with Gavin. That's right. Yeah. They had it in the mess. Because there was no reason to have a parade. <laughs> yeah. And it was one guy. To give a bit of background for the audience, as I was checking in, there had been two courses before Gavin's course that had completely been failed. For real? Yeah. they Zero graduates. Zero graduates. And that was two, that. two consecutive courses and then Gavin's course, mm-hmm. where he was the one of one that, that graduated. Yes, so, which was the saddest grad I've ever seen. Yeah. And so, but good for him. But you think about this, like these were all the guys who were, you know, finishing up the Harvard course as I was just getting started. And they, they seemed like gods. They were so far ahead of us. They had so much knowledge. You know, they go off to the helicopter course and then they fail. How am I going to get through this? You know, it was a serious gut check that had to happen there. And, but I didn't really have too much trouble on the phase three course either. The only hang up I had was uh, actually on the 412 side. I had to redo my, uh, my pre final instrument test. And uh, basically what happened was I botched a, a missed approach. The missed approach instructions was like climb to this altitude straight ahead, then turn to this heading, climb to this altitude, then turn this. So it was like a triple header. And I just 
completely botched. That kind of thing is enough to have an experienced pilot thinking at full capacity. Yeah, your bucket is full when you're when you're doing that. You definitely want you need the, to pre-brief that. That's the kind of miss that I would go over with my co-pilot and like make sure we're both. You know, does that make sense to you? Yeah. Okay. Is that how you understand it? Yeah. Like you're gonna go back and forth and yeah. make sure that that you're both thoroughly aware of how this is gonna go. And also the fact that I didn't ask him to like kind of hold my hand through it, which is what I would do in real life. In real life, yeah. is I would say, okay, give me the play by play on the missed approach as we go through it. Well, you're a student, right? You're trying to play the game and Yeah. Well, and you, you learn a lot of like really getting out of here. You you just have a license to learn. You know, I get on squadron and there was a lot of very quick learning lessons. One example was I was going into a uh, repeater station up in Cold Lake. They have all these repeater stations so that the fighters can talk on a low level. Yeah. And there was this this confined area that we had to land in. And the winds of the day favored coming in over this giant tower. So I shot the approach over the tower and then came down 150 feet. And my aircraft captain after was like, hey, you could have just taken this 20 or 30 degrees out of wind, which is perfectly safe. And you would have just been able to come right down to four feet, which is our normal in-ground effect hover height. So it was just like kind of that switch that had to be turned. And Well, yeah, there's so much airmanship stuff that comes with like experience. And with experience comes some confidence to take more crosswind and, yeah. you know, do those things that are maybe on the surface seem a little more challenging, but they're actually the smarter, safer choice, right? Yeah. Airmanship, it just it takes time, right? It, yeah, it, wisdom yeah. comes from making mistakes. You can't learn it in a book. You can partly learn it with situational discussions and that kind of stuff, but it just comes with time. Yeah, 100%. comes with hours in the logbook. We're going to get into talking about Vic's time as an instructor. We're going to save his time as combat support for another episode. And today we're going to talk about him as a phase three helo instructor. So were you expecting this posting? Were you wanting this posting? So... I actually asked for this posting out of Cold Lake. What made you want to do that? I had kind of gone to aircraft captain. You know, it, it, it either made sense to kind of where do you go from here? Yeah, where do you go from here? Where's like, where's the next gain? And there really wasn't any positions available to shift from the Griffin to the Cormorant. That's always the goal of every SAR pilot is to fly the Cormorant. Yeah. It and, is a cool. Oh, it's a fantastic machine. Yeah. And uh, it was either kind of go to a ground job or go to a school. And I said, hey, like, I would love to teach. I think yeah. that that's great. You get to build lots of hours. Mm -hmm. You stay flying, which has always been my primary goal. You also get that next evolution of now you're now you're instructing the next generation. Now you're an expert in flying, but you're also an expert in teaching people how to fly. So I ended up going up to Goose Bay for a year and then to the Div for two. But then I ended up managing to get myself uh, posted here in June 2020. So kind of between the first and second wave of COVID-19 was was when I uh, when I got posted here. Did you have any delays in training or anything, or was it like pretty much it was, ops normal when you came back? Uh, it wasn't ops normal, but there was really no delays in the training. Like I plugged through pretty quickly. I got here in June, got qualified as a Cat C instructor. I had some really great mentorship. A lot of shout out to those guys who really took me by the hand and you know got me back flying after two years sitting on the bench. Yeah, were you nervous at all coming back? I. had taken a couple baby leaves in the past of yeah. nine months. And so I kind of knew what was, you knew what pain was waiting for you. Yeah. I knew that I was going to suck for a while and that it is awful to come back to flying. I've been on parental leave twice 
It's not a fun process to come back and be like, all right, let's begin the months of memorization and the weeks of pain in the sim. But it makes a difference when you come back with guys who are good dudes to fly with, uh, good people to hold your hand through the process. Yeah. I had some real fantastic instructors here. They really helped me out, get back on the horse. And I even noticed it, even coming back after a month of being off, you notice that you get yourself up to a pretty sharp blade when it comes to flying proficiency. And then you take that month off and you're like, oh, not as good as I was a month ago. Well, we hear it all the time. It's a cliche, but it really is a perishable skill. There's no doubt that the hands and feet, the basics of it never leave. But I think the mental stuff is the hardest part, like just being ahead of the game. Anyone can can get through, especially when you have experience, you can get through a flight hanging on by the skin of your teeth to the back yeah. of the plane and just barely being with what's going on. But what I think is the real mark of proficiency is when you feel like you're 10 steps ahead. There's no like, uh, you know, those lulls where you almost are like, oh, what am I, what am I forgetting? What, what should I be yeah. doing right now? You know, like, and those moments are less frequent. Oh, for sure. And I always remember when I was a student here thinking that, oh man, these, these instructors just they must have a superpower or something. But just with that level of experience that you get in the operational world, you just are so far ahead of the game of where you are as a student. Oh, yeah. Even the other day, the winds had shifted. And for us, like starting downwind can be a bit of a risky business. We could get an over temp situation on the engines when we're starting up. Oh, when you say starting downwind, you mean with the wind from behind? Yeah, if the winds are behind the, the helicopter, you're just not getting the airflow that you want through the turbine. So you could get a compressor stall or you could get some sort of situation where you over temp the engine. And I just pointed that out to one of the students and he thought that was a superpower. But it's that experience, like yeah. you said, right? You have that time in and you get the experience and then you just see these things. Well, when you get a chance to fly operationally and you're flying like with a good regularity, yeah, there's so many things that you learn by being on the aircraft. Having great mentors is another yeah. key thing. Oh, yeah. The difference in the experience you will gain between good and poor mentorship are incredible. I would say that it may be the most critical piece of your training as certainly as an air force pilot is the mentorship you receive hundred percent your hands and feet you pretty much know by the end of flight training if you've got hands or feet and you're yeah. either a bit ham-fisted but you can make it through or you've got a bit of natural talent and it's not going to be a big deal for you but the thing that makes a good military pilot is not just hands and feet it's the decision making it's the airmanship because you're using that aircraft to do a job the job is not flying the aircraft the job is the mission that you're using that yeah. aircraft to accomplish and so the mentorship that you can receive that will give you all the tricks of the trade, so to speak, I think that is a huge, huge piece of your development as a pilot. Yeah. Can you give me a uh, fairly quick outline of what phase three involves on the helicopter? Phase three on the helicopter is uh, done on two aircraft. You have the Bell 206 and you have the Bell 412. You do about a month of ground school for the 206, which is a jet ranger. It's a small two-seater Two front, and then there's kind of three seats in the back. I didn't know that. I thought it was a two-seater. Yeah, it's a, it's still a pretty small little turbine Could aircraft. Could they fit five Brian Morrisons in there? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Well, okay. You, well, you'd be tight in the back. <laughs> it, it would, you'd be, uh, you know. It would be uncomfortable yeah, in the back. But, but it could do it. You could do it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, in theory. Okay. I mean, it's like any helicopter. When it's light, it's a little race car. When it's loaded up, when you're at gross weight, the thing is an absolute slug. It's a pig. Yeah, uh, I mean, the Griffin's the same way. It's, uh, you know, the way we fly it here at the school, we fly at about a thousand pounds under gross weight, typically. Generally speaking, in the wintertime, when it's cool out, flies great too. Mm -hmm. When It's really when you're at altitude, 
when it's hot or when you're very loaded up that the aircraft really becomes sluggish and underperforming. So yeah, you start on the 206 and basically the way I would break it down is that the Bell 206 is really introducing you to helicopter flying. You've been flying fixed wing up until this point. Now we're teaching you how to fly a helicopter. So we do that and then we go on to a navigation phase where we're introducing crew concept. You've been flying single pilot up until that point. Now we're introducing you working as a crew. On the 412 side, we take all of those things that you've learned on the 206 side, and we now start adding the bigger machine with more systems and automation. And uh, so we go through a clear hood phase, we add confined areas, and then we move on to the instrument phase where we're now teaching that automation, we're teaching the flight management system, we're teaching crew concept. Those are the key elements of the instrument phase. And then we're on tonight. It's a quick four, four trips in the aircraft uh, adaptation to night vision goggles. A lot of the time we teach things on the clear hood side that are more difficult techniques when we're flying clear hood, but they really help when you're flying night vision they goggles. translate better into night flying. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just because you have that that smaller uh, field of view. And then once we, once we wrap that, we do a uh, couple uh, composite missions and that's the end of the course. And when you say composite, that's like uh, we give them a scenario and they, uh, they roll with it. So what's a typical. So it'd be like moving uh, fuel from point A to point B. And then there'll be a kind of a snowball scenario from that. So some kind of complication. Yeah. There'll be complications. They'll, they'll run into weather, They'll get retasked for like maybe a medevac or something like that. So putting them into a typical day on the line in a, yeah. in a line squadron. Yeah. For instance, when I was up in Gold Lake, we would do utility missions. And then we were also our our main tasking, though, was search and rescue, you know, and the so you one could get retasked at any point. 100%. It's happened. So uh, you got to be prepared. And so after a composite, that's it. Yeah, that's it. That's wings. That's uh, that's the big day. We promote them. And then we do the grad parade and then we have a mess dinner that night. And hopefully it's not one guy. Hopefully it's not one guy. <laughs> We've been doing good so far. So right on here you are. You're an instructor at Portage. You've completed your training and uh, you start instructing. What did you find was challenging about that at first? Like I found for myself, it was really taking good notes so that you could like debrief and write the cards after. Exactly. Yeah. Like that was something that I was not very diligent at, but I kind of had a good error trap for that in that I would write the cards right away. Well, then you're, you're avoiding the error of delayed grading. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You, you've read the manual. I, I once wrote a test. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. That error of delayed grading is a, is a real thing. And like, even I find, you know, now I'll typically do two trips, you know, sometimes if you don't take those diligent notes, sometimes the trips will blend into each other, especially if it's the same trip. I'm not very original. Like I'll tend to do the first trip and then the second trip will be an exact repeat of the trip before. It's been really good. Like I, I really enjoy teaching. I mean, the students are much better than we were when we were students. Really? I think so. They're more prepared. Do you think that that is a result of better gen or better students? I think it's a better training system. Yeah. I'll break this down for a second. Gen is essentially a word for like crib notes that people pass down from course to course, essentially basically helping the next course to be prepared for what might be coming their way. The way I think about it is that 
you are not going to make every mistake yourself. Yeah, Jen's not a bad thing. Jen can be a bad thing. Jen is G-E-N, and it's, uh, what does it stand for? Like, gen- general know. knowledge, general tips? Yeah, I don't know. Je- I don't even We've know. always called it a good Jen, bad Jen, like all that kind of, yeah. it's an expression. So yeah, you think it, that basically you're getting stronger students now as a result of a stronger training system? Yeah, I think it's a better training system. We're building a better pilot now than what we have in the past. Just due to our the way we train guys, we don't work on a fear-based system. Do you think that the mental performance coaching and stuff that they do is is a factor? Definitely it is. Yeah. Obviously, with my experience with mental health, I think that's like a huge frontier on the future of aviation training. Knowing how to kind of hack your mind a little bit, it really helps. You know, like a lot of the skills that I have now, I wish I had had when I was a student. Oh, dude, being a strong student and being mentally resilient are two separate skills. That is absolutely true. And they're both important. But I think one leads to the other being... I think one aids the other. But I think being a strong student does not necessarily lead you to be mentally prepared. But being mentally prepared will help you be a strong student. Whenever I did have a hiccup in my flight training, it was always like, you know, it was always kind of a a woe is me pity party for a day. And then you kind of pick yourself, dust yourself off. And you saw that so much back then yeah with with anyone who had failed you know you're just as likely to run into them like eight beers deep in the mess uh, rather than figuring out how to how to learn from this kind of thing right yeah there was a lot of bad coping that happened so taking it back a little we said that the thing that you found challenging at first was basically having the brain space to take notes while you were teaching yeah well i i think there was also a lot of learning that happens when you're uh when you first get qualified little things I remember my first trip. So I get qualified and I go immediately on to nights, which is kind of one of the end trips of the course. We had had like our journey logs in the aircraft during the day. Like they just sit in the aircraft because of COVID at night. We would, uh, we would have the books would be in ops. And I totally forgot about that. And so I get out to the aircraft, I flash it up and we're checking in with dispatch. And I say, Hey, uh, outlaw six, two is lifting in one. The girl in dispatch comes back negative. Uh, you haven't signed out the book yet. And so I have to like wind down the aircraft, tell my student, hey, you have control, sit tight. And I have to like run all the way back to dispatch. It was like a lot of little learning curves like that, right? Like little idiosyncrasies. Up until the time you get qualified, you are always flying with another very eminently qualified instructor. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing can simulate being on your own the same as it feels to just be on your own yeah i felt like i really came into my own after 300 hours of instruction which is crazy because like i assume that a lot of people who listen to this will be pilots or people who want to be pilots and i remember when i was a private pilot student i thought of the 200 hour benchmark to get your commercial license as like quite a bit of experience and it's really not and even though I think I have about 2,000 hours now, I still don't think I have a ton of experience. Now we speak about chunks of time, like 300 hours of instructing. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of time in a plane. That's a lot of time to do a job that's so technical. And it's interesting to think that a chunk of time that is so much larger than what we used to think of as like a lot of flying time yeah. as like a little building block to what it takes to kind of start figuring things out. Well, and now I'm kind of at that point where I got about 440 hours of instructional time. And now I'm looking at, you know, taking that next leap where training to be a tester or generating the next flight instructors, getting the A category is uh, okay. Yeah. And that's 500 hours is what you need for that. 
So I think overall, we've said kind of that the most challenging parts of starting the job as a phase three Hilo instructor was either the brain space to write things down. And then there's just the rest of it is just like the same as any new flying position where there's just so much to know and you don't know it. Yeah. What was the best part? Seeing your guys graduate is is the best part. And they jump into the 412 where it's a lot of switches and a lot of instrumentation and uh, just seeing them go from that point where they're really just struggling to to start the aircraft to by the end they're they're very good you're ready to basically take them out on a mission in challenging conditions and you'd still be able to know what to do be a good first officer and be able to like take direction and fly and do all the things i asked you to do we've talked about kind of the nuts and bolts of what the course involves so what's your coolest thing you've gotten to do as an instructor I think the cross countries with the students are the most fun thing that I do. I thoroughly enjoy them. You've been in the Southport box for the last hundred hours of your flight training. You know, you get to do small cross countries on the previous phase two course, but you really don't get to do like a three day VFR, IFR type thing. And I tend to do a lot of hybrid flight plans where I'll go VFR for a while and then I'll transition up to IFR. So VFR is visual flight rules and IFR is instrument flight rules. And so basically one is flying with visual reference to the ground and the other is flying with your instruments. Exactly. Go on. I tend to take off out of Yorkton and then I go over to Big Quill Lake and uh, I tend to teach my students about flying over the water. We never go over the water because it would be unsafe. They're untrained in how to escape the helicopter. And what we tend to do is just hover over the shoreline and they can't see the ground. All they see is water. You don't want to look at the waves. That's like the worst thing you can do because the waves are so dynamic, right? You want to look at all the foam and all the wind lines that are on the lake. And one of the things I always talk to my students about, you want to maintain a stable platform with a helicopter. That is the key element to helicopter flying because we're going to be putting, in my past job, a search and rescue technician out on the hook. In the hook, you mean the winch, right? Yeah, the winch. And they need a stable platform in order to be able to hoist them into a very tight area because the only reason we use the hoist is because we can't land. You know, typically these areas are very small. And if you're not stable, you're going to be dragging this poor guy through the trees. So it's very, very important. So for you, like the coolest part is just getting a chance to get outside of the area and like get on the road, go to some new places. Yeah. Show the students a place that is not just their training area. We don't necessarily teach it in the training plan here, but it is very useful knowledge. You know, try to give them a few skill sets and just try to get, you know, plant some seeds in their mind for what's next for you. What can I get excited about? And that's not just necessarily for search and rescue. That's for tactical flying. We'll tend to talk about a lot of tactics, you know, especially given what's happening in the world right now with the Ukraine-Russia conflict. There's definitely a lot of lessons learned to be captured. Yeah. Seeing a modern conflict with helicopters and modern anti-aircraft. Yeah. And man pads. Man pads being... Man portable air defense systems. Oh, yeah, you know your stuff, which is basically a shoulder-fired rocket launcher yeah. intended to take out uh, aircraft. There's so much to see there and, and to learn from what's gone on in that conflict. The big thing that I find so crazy is the Russians are just rolling through Ukraine at 200 feet. I think that's insane. Too high? Way too high. 
four feet, which is like to any airplane pilot out there is very, very low. Well, and the reason you want to be as near as possible or nap of the earth is that if you have an enemy in the tree line with a man pad or some sort of stinger, it gives them less time to react to you and they can't see you through multiple tree lines. But if you're at two, three hundred feet, you're a target for a much broader area. And that's a lot of what we're seeing is helicopters that seem to be cruising as if they were unopposed at, at several hundred feet in the air. Yeah. And they're just cruising along and Mr. Stinger comes and down and reaches out and touches them. Yeah. What seems to be like one of the bigger challenges that students face on phase three Hilo? We actually have been very fortunate lately. We haven't had many failures. We haven't ceased trained anybody since I've been an instructor here. I would say that the tendency for people to have hiccups in any phase tends to be towards the end of the phase because over each phase, we tend to demand more and more excellence. And so it's very easy to make one mistake on a trip and then that kind of snowballs into two or three more. You get what's called an unsatisfactory flight. The biggest thing for students, I think, is to be able to make a mistake, learn from it, put it behind you, have a short memory on the flight. We can relive it afterwards and find all the nuances of how to make it better. But on the trip, you've got to be able to put it behind you. Don't dwell on it because the next maneuver is in front of you and you got to perform well on that. And it kind of strikes me that that's true of both a mistake during the flight and a flight that you don't pass. They're both important to just sort of have a short memory on, right? Like you make a mistake during the flight, you got to just keep pressing on and do your best for the rest of the flight. Like it's not a reason to torpedo the flight. And if you have a setback, you don't pass a flight, you get a marginal. Then again, it's important to, you know, you got to learn from it, but you got to move on. Because like if you let that dog you, you're done. Well, and the thing I find, too, is if guys are able to move on from that bad thing, they'll get a marginal. And that still means like, yeah, you you failed one item, but you can fail two items on every flight other than a test and a pretest and still carry on to the next flight. It's really when you have that bad thing happen and then you let it snowball on you and then you fail multiple items that's when you really have the problem. So it's a very important thing to be able to realize, hey, yeah, I screwed that up. You know, I'm going to learn from it. We're going to move on. And oftentimes, if somebody screws something up, we can always repeat it at the end if we got a little extra time. And if they do well on it, well, hey, we'll use the terminal level, which means like, hey, you managed to upgrade it by the end of the flight. So good to go. And, you know, there is some debate about whether we use like kind of the average throughout the trip or if we use like, hey, how did they do in the end of the trip as the grade? But I'm a big believer is, hey, if you can learn from your mistakes and improve, hey, I'm going to give you that that bonus. What do you think is the most important thing you do to keep yourself ready for the job? I think gain enough sleep. Yeah. Yeah. My family situation, I have three kids and a pretty busy life, right? You know, lots of extracurriculars and a foster child. Well, and a foster child. We we do foster as well. But uh, gain a good sleep habit is so vital. If you are not well rested, your mind is not working where it needs to be. And uh, I notice the degraded performance. I've noticed it more and more as I get more experienced. If I am tired, I am not as alert, you know, and I, I can still teach a trip, but am I giving the best instructional performance that I can? No, it's something I have to be very cognizant of and make sure that, hey, I'm, you know, getting to bed at a decent hour, not getting sucked into like some great Netflix show or something yeah. like that. You know, so being disciplined in that domain is is very vital. 
It's a stress reducer too, right? To know you're going in well-rested versus being kind of stressed out because you know you didn't sleep well and you know you're supposed to and, you know, all that kind of mind games that can go on with sleep, right? Well, and you're sucking back on three or four coffees trying to like get yourself perked up four hours of paying attention and, and not just like, you know, what you normally do day to day. You have to be watching constantly. You know, I've had instances where, you know, you have to grab the controls within a split second or else you're going to be balling an aircraft up. You cannot afford to be. You just have to be alert. You have to be alert. Yeah. What do you think are the attributes that make a good pilot? I think somebody who can think outside the box. Like problem solving. Problem solving is a huge thing. It doesn't necessarily play so much where we are in the training mill, but I think that is what really distinguishes a good mission commander. That's that ability to sort of deal with like new situations yeah. and yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the combat situation is always evolving and you have to be willing to adapt to those scenarios and that's very challenging that's way harder than it sounds yeah absolutely and not only that but you have to be a good contingency planner a good plan never survives first contact with the enemy yeah oh yeah half half of aviation is if this happens i'll do this if this happens i'll do this and that will help you to a certain amount but then you also have to have that reactive that ability to react and adapt and that's a hard thing to teach too you know like we always say that those sorts of soft skills that are kind of more intangible those are more like experience-based skills. Yeah, they have to be taught through experience or through, you know, wargaming things. And uh, that is, though, where sitting down as a group of pilots and sharing your experiences, what would you do if this, what would you do if that, tabletopping it, we, we yeah. would call it on the Aurora, doing a bunch of tabletop exercises does pay off. It gets your mind thinking. And as silly as it sounds, doing those dry run scenarios in your head does pay dividends down the road. 100%. Because if this is the first time you're thinking about it, you haven't captured all the possible contingencies and you're one person. You know, if you're if you're sitting in a room with a whole bunch of other people, they may have a better way of doing it. Part of what we want to do here is we want to try to help new pilots. We want to try to help aspiring pilots. So what would your advice be to someone who wants to join the Air Force as a pilot? I think... From a flying perspective, to make you a better aviator right now in the immediate time that we're talking to you and something you could pick up no matter where you're at is just go out and learn about flying. You know, go attend a ground school at your local flying club. Grab yourself a copy of From the Ground Up. From the Ground Up. Yeah. All those little things that we learn about, like, for instance, adiabatic lapse rate. I employ that Every time I go flying, you know, just going out and getting basic meteorology, just understanding this, going through, like learning how to VFR fly. All these skill sets are building blocks that you will use in your future career. And really like one of the best ways you can do that is either if you are younger, you can join air cadets and and go to ground school and they're going to teach you all this stuff. And if you are older, 18, 19, whatever it is that you age out, like you said, go to ground school, buy a copy of From the Ground Up, read it a bunch of times till it makes sense. Yeah, just go out and put the reps in, right? That is the biggest thing is just the more you can learn about flying and aviation and how everything kind of ties together. All of the concepts that I teach my students who are just about to graduate, when I'm about to slap wings on their chest, is all a series of very simple things. Going out and getting a basic understanding of all these things, how all these things kind of piece together. You know, there's nothing that is really difficult to wrap your head around. It's about just getting out there and putting that first rep in. 
I like that expression, get the reps in, because it's the truth. It's not sexy. It's like that Olympic weightlifter that's competing. They've done that same lift thousands of times. Yeah. And it's that one time on stage. Those are the exciting times. But before you can do that, you need to have done the groundwork thousands of times. Okay, that's going to wrap it up on our episode on Phase 3 Hilo. We want to thank Vic again for taking the time to chat with us today. Our next episode will feature my good friend Dan Conway, who has flown both the Buffalo and currently the Hercules, and we'll be talking about Phase 3 multi-engine, so you can learn all about what it takes to become a multi-engine pilot in the RCAF. This week, I'd especially like to thank you, the listeners. We just passed 1,000 listens, and honestly, I could not be more thrilled. What can you do to help us continue to succeed? I'm glad you asked. There are three things you can do. First, subscribe on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts. Second, tell your friends about the show. We rely almost entirely on word of mouth for the show to spread. And third, you can leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. As we get close to wrapping up our series on the training system, it's time to think about what's ahead. We'll be hearing from pilots on all different platforms about what it's like to fly around the world in areas such as Iraq, Afghanistan, Mali, and many more. We'll also have a chance to chat about that final frontier, space, as we sit down with the commander of 3 Canadian Space Division, Brigadier General Mike Adamson. There's lots to get excited about in the coming episodes, so get ready. As always, you can follow us on all social medias at at podpilotproject, and you can reach us by email at thepilotprojectpodcast at gmail.com. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Keep the blue side up. See ya! Engineer, shut down all four. Shutting down all four engines.